Now then, today we have a very special day because we have a new friend with us. This friend's name is Shane Hips. Some of you may know who that is, but for those of you who don't know who he is, let me tell you all about Shane. Shane is from Michigan. He was a teaching pastor for a while at Mars Hills. Um, that's where Rob Bell was a teaching pastor for a while. But now what Shane does is he goes around and he preaches and he teaches and he does leadership development. I mean, this guy is a busy guy, right? He's doing a lot. Not only that, but he also writes books. And this is his most recent book. It is called Selling Water by the River, a book about the life Jesus promised and the religion that gets in the way. Now, when he speaks today, a lot of the concepts he'll be talking about are also found in this book. So if today intrigues you, this would be a good resource to find out more information. Also, after today's sermon, you might just be so blown away that you're like, wow, this guy is so smart and witty and he just has such wisdom and discernment. I have to find out more. I have to know what else is going on with this guy. If you want to find out about that, he has a website, very convenient, and conveniently titled shanehips.com. Very easy to remember. So <laughs> that's a good resource for you also. So please join me in welcoming our friend, Shane. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, and after that introduction, of course, you'll now be monumentally disappointed by what I bring. Uh, something about wisdom and intelligence, and not so much, but, um, you know, I am handsome, right? Sort of? <laughs> Hardly. Uh, so some of you may have noticed that my book was about, uh, you know, how religion gets in the way of God and all that good stuff. And I just want to be clear that Greg Boyd, who published a book in 2004 called Repenting of Religion, stole most of his ideas. <laughs> from my book, and there might have been time travel involved, I don't know how, I'm not going to get into the details, but it's very clear that's what happened. Um, I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, as <clears throat> Vanessa mentioned, I'm Shane, I come from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is the epicenter of progressive culture, and I'm uh, delighted to bring some of that here. But I actually grew up in Minneapolis, in Edina, actually, I'm a Minnesota guy. So uh, I'm a cake eater, for those of you who know much about Edina, cake eaters. I was here a couple of months ago when uh, the Edina High School men's hockey team won state. That was a very exciting moment for me. Thank you. A few fans, that's great. The rest of you, not so much. Not surprisingly, since I'm not in Minneapolis or Edina in this moment. So uh, in any case, uh, really glad to be here when it's warm. Wow. Uh, what a tough winter. Is there anybody else with me? Good. Okay. Now I feel like I'm a stand-up comedian, like that's going somewhere, but it's not. That was just purely talking to you. Okay, so now how about we get into the business of why I'm actually here. Would everybody open, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open the book of John, and we'll get into some stuff for today. Uh, it'll also be on the screen if you're not really a Bible-toting kind of person, but if you are, feel free to open the book of John, and we'll talk about some things. A um, couple of things I want to start with. Prior to being a pastor at a large church in Michigan, I was actually also a pastor of a Mennonite church in Phoenix. Now, uh, those of you may not know what a Mennonite is, or you may associate them with like the Amish, driving buggies and head coverings and stuff. Uh, some Mennonites are like that, but actually the vast majority of Mennonites are fully integrated into culture, but they have this odd duck kind of offbeat way of practicing their faith, and what informs and funds their entire way of faith is a stream of faith known as Anabaptism. And I think some of you might have heard that word before. Is that true? 
I'm getting that impression is what I'm saying. So uh, I understand you went through a series and Greg has been uh, pretty interested in and influenced by some of that kind of thinking. And uh, so that's in some ways Greg and I have that in common. We're both fairly influenced by that. Of course, neither of us are bound to any, any particular theological stream. It's just we appreciate the contributions of each. And right now, the Anabaptism is giving us a lot of wisdom. So we're, we're trying to offer that as well. And when I was in that church, in that Mennonite church, what I learned was that the Anabaptist way of faith, the values that Greg has been talking a lot about, are, are for the most part caught, not taught. They're somehow embodied like on a cellular level. They kind of get lived out. And I found myself among, I chose to find Mennonites because I wanted to learn how to live the way they lived. I wanted to kind of figure out those rhythms. And so I spent quite a bit of time living with them. And in fact, I, it was quite true. Their way of being is just different than the way that I was used to, which was kind of the evangelical world that I came from. Um, and nothing wrong with that. It was just a, something I was looking for that was a little different. Uh, and I met a man, and I met a lot of people like this, but one of the guys, Paul David Heiser, was in my community. He's 86 years old, and during World War II, he was a conscientious objector. And uh, so in the 1940s, to be a pacifist was a very dangerous thing to be, uh, quite literally. I mean, now, nowadays, being a pacifist has sort of a kind of a, uh, an innovative quality to it for some schools of thought. People think it's kind of hip and interesting or... Um, but at that time, it was quite dangerous. People had death threats on their life. People were um, often beaten up. They were uh, threatened with all kinds of things. So this is serious. And he had this incredible story where he was a 21-year-old kid right off the farm, and he was drafted into the military, and he renounced violence. And so they said, then you have to do alternative service. And what they did in the 40s is a kind of a you know, uh, a joke, and it's not a joke is the right word, but what they would do to conscientious objectors during World War II is they would do things like they would put them in the uh, violent ward of a mental institution and make them orderlies and say, so we'll just see how well your nonviolence plays out in that. And the violent wards at that time, especially in, in most mental institutions at that time, they were really more like warehouses for the insane. They were not what you think of as mental health institutions today. Uh, usually large concrete gymnasiums with no beds and people wandering around with or without clothes and straight jackets on and orderlies would beat them on a regular basis if they sensed a threat. And it's a, it was a very, very dark place. So what would happen is these, a group of 21 year old kids would come in. They believed these kind of simple teaching that you just shouldn't be violent. And they were faced with this incredible violence and danger. And Paul and his friends would find themselves in these rooms with these violent people who would end up beating them up. And he sustained broken bones and all kinds of things. And Paul was built like a horse. He's a very strong, powerful guy. And he never responded with violence. And it was an amazing story. And in fact, his story is part of a larger story that I find even more amazing, which is... The Mennonites and Quakers and Brethren churches, who are all sort of peace churches, were all in alternative service and were sent into the most violent parts of our society here locally. And what started happening was they started to transform those places in ways that were unexpected. And so that today what started to happen was new methods of behavior modification have been adopted and formalized, one particularly known as gentle teaching, that is used to de-escalate violence among mentally ill or uh, mentally disabled people. And what they found is the Mennonites were the ones and the nonviolent peace church activists were the ones who knew how to de-escalate violence. 
And uh, what would happen is the, the inmates would see and experience after they had done violence to one of the orderlies who was a Mennonite, they would see that Mennonite would never retaliate. But they would find creative ways to try to contain and de-escalate. And all of a sudden, the inmates started feeling dignity. And the more dignity they felt, the less violent they needed to be. This is a really a remarkable story and radical kind of way of faith. And so I remember I had Paul on the stage, and I asked him. I was interviewing in front of the community, and some of whom were in the military. So, you know, being a pacifist is not always a popular thing, and some people are kind of feel judged by that and are a little defensive about it sometimes. So I asked him, Paul, why did you do what you did? And he said, well, you know, I was always taught... Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. He said to love your enemy. Best I could tell, if you're loving your enemy, you probably shouldn't kill them or hurt them. Um, So, you know, that's just my understanding of how to follow Jesus. uh, But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Here's this guy. He's devoted his life to a way of faith. He's actually absorbed physical violence for his belief. That's how convicted he was by this belief. And yet he held it in a nonviolent way. Even the way he held his belief was non-coercive. I call what I experienced among the Mennonites daring humility. This capacity to believe something firmly and yet hold it with an open hand and an open heart. And what that means is when you have that kind of way of faith, when a teacher gets up to share a word, they are not the voice of God. They are one member among the community. So I bring that, hopefully, that spirit here today, that I think this is a a group of people who would welcome that, which is, I am not the final word, I'm the first word. You get to be the final word. So what I'm about to share is an argument. I'm going to be making a case, building an argument for a particular perspective on a passage that you may or may not agree with. The the point is not that you need to agree with me or that I'm right just because I've studied it or something. Because I could be wrong. But the hope is that you hear my conviction in it and that you'll entertain it a bit with your own conviction and see where we land. So everybody with me? Does that make sense? Woo! All right. Preach it. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm excited. Uh, We're going to go now into the book of John, chapter 12. Oh, uh, the teaching is called, by the way, Two Kinds of Life. Um, If you wonder what that graphic is, it'll come back later. Uh, It won't come back later, but that's an ocean and those are clouds. And they're kind of offset. Ready for that? Ooh. See, that's a teaser. Okay. Uh, It was supposed to be exciting, and it was for about three of you. So, um, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, Many people, Christian theologians, uh, Talk about, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, so many people talk about this as a uh, paradox. So in Christian land, what we do sometimes is we take passages like, uh, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And we go, that's like a paradox. It's like two things that don't make sense, that don't go together. And then because we as theologians can't explain it, we go, that's called a paradox. And then it sounds really, really smart. And you go, ooh, paradox. Yes, of course. And then you kind of let it lie because nobody really knows what a paradox is. Anyway, so you're like, yeah, cool. That's a paradox, yep. So you should use that in your daily life. If you get a chance, if you're like getting busted on something, you're like, no, 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 I wasn't lying. That's a paradox. That's just, there you go, that's free. Anyway, so 
So anyway, all I'm saying is uh, sometimes that happens. And sometimes things really are paradoxes. However, this passage, which says if you, uh, you know, love your life, you'll lose it. And if you hate it, you'll gain it, uh, is not actually a paradox. It is a, it's actually a, what's called a buzzkill, um, which is a technical theological word, as many of you know. Um, buzzkill. Why is it a buzzkill? Okay, well, think about it for just a minute. Uh, so if I really am enjoying my life, it's gone. And if I'm just miserable, I get to keep that. <laughs> what a deal, right? So I'm incredibly happily married, which means I'm going to lose that. Or I'm just absolutely driven insane by my marriage, which means I get to have it forever. <laughs> Never going away. Yay! Right? So you can see why it's kind of a buzzkill. <laughs> okay. What I would like to suggest to you are a couple of things, uh, and, and one of the things I'm going to do here is I'm actually going to suggest this isn't a buzzkill and nor is it a paradox. It's something else. And the way that we're going to get at what that is, is I'm going to peel away the English layer of the passage. And uh, just so you know, the Bible, the New Testament, many of you probably know, was written in Greek. And so what happens is it gets translated from the Greek language into the English language, and then we read it in English. And sometimes that's really helpful, and sometimes that causes certain things to be opaque or hidden in meaning. And so what, what our job is as teachers is to try to peel that back and show you some of it. So, for example, some words have a what's called a semantic range or a range of meaning. So if I say, I love ice cream and uh, I love my daughter, um, my hope is that though those are the same words, that the range of meaning might be a little different. Fair enough? So we use one word to mean lots of things. Fair enough? Yep. Okay. Same thing happens here. So the Greek writers have like a range of meaning, and then the English translators go, well, what's the range over here, and which word should we choose that might match it? And anytime you choose one word, you exclude the possibility of others, and so then you hide certain things. So what I'm going to do is show you what the semantic range of the Greek words in certain parts of this passage reveal, and why this isn't a buzzkill or a paradox. First word I want to just point out briefly is the word hates. Uh, in the Greek, it's the word maseo, and maseo is actually not uh, an emotion. You see, in English, we think hate as an emotion. But in the Greek, maseo primarily refers to an action, not an emotion. And that action, in this case, is something more akin to surrender or movement against. So what that would mean is, I would translate this differently and say the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who surrenders his life will gain it. Now, that does not fix the, the problem of the passage, but it does put a slightly finer point on what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the emotion of hating life. We're talking about maseo, which is the ability to surrender, release, or become less attached to certain aspects of life. Make sense? Great. Next one. Up here, there are three words. Life. It's used three times. And what I'm submitting to you is that Jesus in this passage is making a distinction between two kinds of life, two different kinds of life. And the reason we know that is because when you peel away the English language, it reveals different Greek words. So the first two instances of life are the words psyche or suke. Last week, if you were here, Greg talked about the suke as being translated as soul which is accurate. That's one of the ranges of meaning of the word psyche or suke. It's where we get psychology from, the study of the soul. However, the word psyche in Greek also refers to life, so it's an accurate way to say life, but it's talking about a very specific aspect of life. For the Greeks, psyche 
is what you were given when you were born and what you lose when you die. So everything that happens in your life is the psyche. Your job, your relationships, your health, your family, your money, your clothes, your stuff, all of this stuff that makes up my life. So when people go, my life is going badly, they're referring to stuff of life, the things that happen to us in life. That is your psyche. That is my psyche. Now, Jesus talked about this kind of life somewhere else, too. In the book of John, he also says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The word life there is the word suke or again, or psyche. So here you have this contrast. Jesus is trying to illustrate. If you learn to become too attached to the things of your life, you will lose it. But if you learn to become less attached, you gain something else. And this is what you gain. So let's go back to that passage. The man who surrenders his psyche in the world will keep it for eternal life. The word life here is the word zoe. Zoe is a very different kind of life than psyche. Zoe is something else. Zoe gets referred to a lot in the Bible. And uh, let me just show you a few places. In him was life, and the life was the light of all humanity. This is Zoe. In him was Zoe. And the Zoe was the light of all humanity. And again, here. I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. Here it is, Zoe. Jesus points us to. He came to reveal and promise something he calls Zoe. And it is in contrast to the psyche. So Jesus is making a distinction between two different kinds of life. And the Zoe life, according to Jesus was not the stuff that happens in your life or in my life, but the fact of my life. Zoe is about my existence itself, the very gift and miracle of an existence. To be alive regardless of what happens in that life is Zoe. And he's saying these are two different things that we often conflate merge, combine. We're constantly erasing the line between the two, and it causes problems. And that's what he's trying to show us. Zoe life has really no beginning and no end. Zoe life is perfectly continuous, unchanging, immovable. It is unaffected by the things of the psyche. The psyche by its nature is always rising, always falling, always changing. If you're having a great time in life right now, just wait. If your life is going terribly right now, just wait. I promise you, it will get better. And I promise you, it will get worse. <laughs> Why do I promise this? Because that is its nature. Cats, bark for, cats don't bark for a reason. It's not their nature. So to wish it to be something it is not is a problem. Zoe is not like that. Immovable. Think of it in this way. Maybe a few analogies to help kind of get our heads around these different kinds of life. Think about the sky for a minute and the clouds in the sky. The, the psyche is like the clouds, and the zoe is the sky that contains the clouds. 
The clouds are always moving, always changing. Some days are worse than the other days. If you live in Minnesota or Grand Rapids, it's mostly worse. <laughs> Been a rough winter, has it not? <laughs> the clouds of the psyche, always changing, always moving, but nothing penetrates, nothing moves the immovable sky that contains it all. Think about the waves on the ocean. Some parts of the ocean, and on some days, waves are calm, cool, serene, still. On other days, they are incredibly tumultuous, big, rough, threatening, dangerous. The surface of the ocean is a slave to the elements. By its nature, it is always moving, always changing. Some days are good, some days are bad. That is the psyche, the surface of the ocean. But if you were to go deep into the ocean, there is a womb-like quality that protects and does not move and is not a slave to the elements above. So you have this place, that is the zoe. Depths of the ocean is the zoe, the surface of the sea is the psyche. Just making sense. One more. Let's say you see a sunset And you decide to take a picture of it. And it's a really, really beautiful sunset. And then you take that picture and you do a little Photoshop tweaking and you turn it into something even more spectacular than what you could see. I mean, we're talking like screensaver, awesome, right? Really bright, brilliant colors, hyper real. That's a beautiful picture. You could hang it on a wall. You could certainly use it for its own beauty, its own inspiration. It'd be very nice. However, should you find yourself in a dark place And in need of light, a firefly will produce more light than the picture of the sun. If you're looking for light, you will find it in the sun, not in the picture of the sun. The psyche is the picture. The zoe is the sun. If you go looking in the psyche for things that it does not possess in its nature, you will be very disappointed. Because you can only find that somewhere else. Make sense? Getting a little bit of a picture. So, when I came out of college, my dad uh, and I were walking in the backyard. It was actually, I was still in college. I was on Easter break, and I was getting ready to graduate. And I was really stressed. I didn't know what was going to happen in my future. I was struggling. I was frightened. I was... Pretty, uh, pretty depressed on one level. And, uh, of course, when I look back now at the things I was facing, you know, when you look at life now, it's kind of adorable what I was stressed about. But, um, but at the time, those are very real. You know, it's very real things. And so you, you got to affirm that that's the reality of what someone's facing. So in any case, I was, uh, I was walking in the backyard with my dad, and my dad said to me, Shane, uh, I have a sense that there's a knot in your spirit. You know, standard conversation. <laughs> Uh, and, and I, my dad and I had not had a conversation like this. Now, I, I knew my dad was very, very steeped in spirit. He, he would wake up every morning for 40 years and spend two hours in time of prayer and contemplation and reflection. And uh, so I knew he was that, but it was a very internal part of his life. He didn't spend a lot of time talking about it. He didn't show it on his sleeve at all. It was just a big part of who he was, but just not outside. So when he said that, I, of course, took notice, and, of course, he recognized something very significant that I hadn't talked about much. 
So I nodded my head, and he said, yeah. And I get the sense that it's about right here, and he placed his hand on my chest. And I kind of felt a jolt of his warmth there. And, uh, and he said, I'd like to pray for it. And uh, he had not done that before, and so I, I was immediately nervous, but also grateful. So he placed one hand there on my chest, the other hand on my back, and he stood there kind of next to me, facing me, and he bowed his head, and I bowed mine, and he didn't say a word. And we just stood there like this. And I remember my eyes closed, and I remember the sun streaming through the trees, washing my face, and I remember a knot (laughs) forming in my throat as something began to uncoil in my chest, and tears began to stream. And then he stopped, just put his hands down and stood next to me. And I was a little embarrassed, and I wiped the tears out. And, uh, in that moment, I no longer had any worries or any fears. Now, nothing in my life changed between three seconds before and the three seconds after. All the things that were bearing down on me, all the things that I was afraid of, all the things that pressured me were still there. But I was immersed in the sea of Zoe. And it radically changed how I experienced the psyche. Make sense? Can I get an amen? How about a you ain't lying, Pastor? You guys are the best. I've tried that on so many communities. You actually get it. Okay. They're like, what? I don't know. What, what do you mean you ain't lying? I don't, why are we talking about this? You guys got it. Okay. Can you think of a time in your own life when things were bad and then suddenly, for whatever reason, suddenly you could tolerate it and then the next minute you couldn't and the next minute you could? Nothing changed in the situation. What changed was our connection. So if you can think of a moment in your life where that's happened, hold on to it for a minute, because I'm going to talk about what that was. We've talked about the Zoe, but I need to put a finer point on it. Let's go back to the passage for a minute. The word Zoe in the Bible is very often and most often accompanied by another word. It's a describing word, and that describing word gets translated as eternal. Eternal zoe. Let's talk about eternal zoe for just a minute. This is a common phrase. Eternal life. Now, in the Gospels, you have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. It's just a big word to describe that you can view them all together. In other words, they're all borrowing from the same source material. John is a different kind of gospel. And the source material of these three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Whereas John's gospel talks about eternal life. They are mean the same thing using different words. So when we talk about eternal zoe, we're talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus has come to reveal and point us to, this reality. So, when we're talking about eternal life, the word eternal is in the Greek, the word aeon. And aeon is, 
as I said, often translated as forever. Uh, but that's a problem because that's not actually what the word means. There are two primary meanings for aeon. The first one is uh, a, a, an era or a season, a th- something that has a beginning and an end. So you might say the Bush aeon or era or the Clinton Bush or the Clinton era aeon, right? The beginning and an end. Far more often, though, the word aeon refers to something that resides outside of time. Aeon is something that resides outside of time. Now, this, of course, sounds incredibly philosophical uh, and very abstract, so let me just put some feet on it for us. Uh, Maybe you've been in love. Maybe you've been in love, and maybe in those really early stages of being in love with that man or woman that you just can't stop thinking about. You get a phone call one night, and as you're on the phone with that person, you look at the clock, and you notice that it's about 8 o'clock. And then you say something, and then you turn around and you look at the clock, and it's somehow two in the morning. Some of you may be familiar with this experience, right? That was a moment of aeon, where the clock disappeared. You stepped outside of time, and the joy was so much that you had no relationship to hours, minutes, or seconds. They didn't mean a thing. It's a moment of aeon. Give you another example. Let's say that you found some sort of a growth on your body, a lump of some kind. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at the lump, asks you a number of questions, and then goes, hmm. Yeah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> that, could be, that could be serious. Or, or it might just be nothing. Um... Let's do some tests. We're going to do some tests, and then we'll know. Um, Tests will be done in about a week. How long does that week last? (laughs) Six lifetimes? Seven? Twelve? Aeon. It's a moment where you step outside of time, and the clock goes, (laughs) and you're like, come on. Keep moving. It's that last three seconds of the spin class where you're like, how could three seconds not go? It's three seconds. Why is it so long? It's a moment of aeon. So when you read in the Bible words like eternal torment or eternal suffering and then eternal life, they're not talking about a successive unending sequence of minutes, seconds, hours, days, months, and years. They're talking about a moment where you go... You're out of time. You just, you're not even in relationship to time. And that means, that means that we have access to eternal life here and now, not just there and then. And we have access to eternal suffering here and now, not just there and then. Because it's not about forever. If you try to ask, is eternal life forever, that's like asking how fast the color blue is. It's just a confusion of categories, that's all. So, two points that I want us to be clear on when we're talking about Aeon Zoe. First one is this. Eternal life is the joy of life, no matter what happens in life. It's that moment where my dad prayed for me 
And no matter what was going on in my life, I suddenly was ushered into this unfolding place of joy and gratitude and peace and love. No matter what was happening in my life, I tasted a moment of Aeon Zoe. And any of you in this room who have faced and will face again difficult things where you suddenly have a moment where everything is okay even though nothing is all right, it's a moment of Aeon Zoe, and it is the most important moment in your life. So the first point. Second point is this. The possibility of eternal life begins the day you're born, not the day you die. possibility of eternal life begins the day we are born, not the day we die. Anybody with me on that? So much of the time we spend believing that Jesus taught that eternal life is what you get when you die. There's a reason that he wanted us urgently to know the message. And it's not because he was afraid you and I were about to die. It's he was afraid that we were alive and not awake to the reality that was in us. I haven't died, and I haven't come back from death, so I can't speak firsthand about what happens after we die. But I have a belief about it. And my belief is that what you find now, you find there. My belief is that if you don't recognize eternal life here, what makes you think you'll recognize it there? The life Jesus promised is here and now just as much as it's there and then. This is what's possible. And it takes an incredible amount of practice. Make this distinction. The line between the two is really, really important. Whatever's going on in your life, that's the stuff of life. That's the psyche. The zoe is a whole lot like your breath. It enters you in every moment of your life, regardless of what you have done or undone, regardless of what you think or others think of you, regardless of what you have achieved or have failed to achieve. It brings no judgment and perfect faithfulness for the rest of your life, independent of what happens in your life. That is the Zoe, and it is being given to you in this very moment and every moment for the rest of your life until the end. This is your Zoe. It's already in you. And so, when my mind constantly erases the difference between these two kinds of life, I become like the dog fixated on the bone. A dog chews a bone, and the bone cuts the gums just enough to release a little bit of blood, which is salty, and that's why the dog chews the bone. The dog believes that the bone is the source of the blood, but the blood is in the dog. I spend my life believing that that photograph is the source of light when it is the sun. Make the distinction. And the possibilities are endless for joy. Fail to make the distinction, and suffering is guaranteed. Now, it would be easy to walk away from this teaching 
and assume that the psyche is bad and the zoe is good. And that when we draw that line, one is black and the other is white. And this one is better than that one. And that would be a mistake because that's not what Jesus says. Jesus, in this passage, says, this is a matter of sequence, not binary opposites. Sequence. Get them in the right order, and everything changes. Get them out of order, and you're in trouble. Let me say it another way. It's a matter of ones and zeros. It's a matter of ones and zeros. Take the number one and put a zero in front of the one, what happens to the value of the one? Nothing. Ah, but what if we add another zero? Then, nothing. (laughs) I could add as many zeros as I want, and it will not change the value of the one or the zero, correct? I'm not a math major, but I, I know that much. However, if we take a one, and we put the zero after the one, I now have 10. The value of the zero and the one are both transformed when you get them in the right order. And now something amazing happens. Add another zero and I've got 100. I can add zeros till I'm blue in the face and every zero I add radically transforms the value of the zero and the one. The zoe is a one. Everything in my life is a zero. My daughters, they're a zero. My parents, they're a zero. My bank account, it's a zero. My friends, they're zeros. (laughs) Takes one to know one, right? My health, it's a zero. My clothing, it's a zero. My spouse, zero. Everything's a zero. If I get them out of order, I lose the value of both. If I get them in the right order, the psyche becomes more extraordinary and beautiful than you ever imagined. It adds to the riches of life, but only if the zoe is first. And this is why you cannot simply say the psyche is bad and the zoe is good. It's not like that. It's if you lose or surrender attachments to the psyche and pick up the zoe, you can have this too. Otherwise, you lose both. This is why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and and all these things will be added to you. Righteousness too. (laughs) And all these things will be added to you, right? It's a matter of sequence. This is at the heart of the teaching. This is at the heart of the revelation of God. Get the order right. You know, this is actually what the Ten Commandments is founded upon. The backbone of the entire Old Testament, the trajectory of everything, the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You all have no other gods before me. So every, all of us know when we read the first commandment, it's like, got it, there's only one God. Got the message, only one God. Got the message, only one God, except for one tiny little minuscule problem, which is he added the words before me. Before me. See, now, God, now you're messing with stuff. What you should have said is you shall have no other gods, period. But you said before me, which means that we're going to have other gods. 
It, it, God is saying, hey, you're going to have other gods. I mean, of course you're going to have other gods. I just want them after me. Why would he say before me? Because it's a matter of sequence for God. It's a tacit acknowledgement there are other gods. And they just have to come after this God. Now, what I'm not saying here is that God believes and is telling us that we can believe or should believe in mythological statues and figures. That's the ancient world. When God is talking about other gods, he's not talking just about that. Yeah, it includes that, but he's talking about how everything in our psyche life has the capacity to become a god to us. And when you get it out of sequence, that's a moment of idolatry. That's what they call it in the Old Testament. That's what that is. And just so we're all clear, just in case there's any question, God doesn't want to be first for his own ego needs. God is not like sitting here going, I feel like I haven't really been recognized enough. I feel like if you're not praising me enough, I'm really just not sure how I feel about myself. You understand that he doesn't actually need that? (laughs) He wants to be first, not for his sake, but for our sake. Because he knows that when you get the psyche in front of the Zoe, when you get the zero in front of the one, you just lose all the value. You lose all your riches. You lose all the beauty. You lose the miracle. He wants you to enjoy the miracle of this gift. Zoe and Psyche, just in the right order. This is the challenge we all face. About every three to five seconds, I will lose sight of this truth. And I erase the line, and I'm wrapped up in my psyche life. And I have completely forgotten the miracle of the Zoe. Every one of us in this room, every one of us in this room, will someday know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the clarity of Zoe, the beauty and the gift of Aeon Zoe, And it's usually the moment when we realize we only have a few breaths left. I sat with a woman in a hospital who had been dying from a terminal illness for about a year. And she was very near the end now. And as I sat with her, I watched as she was in great pain. Her body was emaciating. She was losing everything. And she had more clarity and serenity than I've ever had. And I noticed that she could see clearly that every single breath that came in was nothing short of a divine miracle. And that all the stuff in life were merely more gifts. But she was so focused on the one that mattered most. She was at ease and at peace. True wisdom is getting there before the catastrophe hits. This is what Jesus came to reveal, to show us, 
Get the order right, whatever you do. Get the order right. Possibility is right here for you and I. And we get a chance to practice it every single moment of our lives. Right now in this moment, I have a chance to recognize the miracle, to accept the gift that Jesus came to offer, to let that manifest in my life and offer it to the world. Recognize the Zoe, you become a lit candle. Fail to recognize the Zoe, you are an unlit candle. An unlit candle cannot light another candle, but a lit candle can light as many as you want. You want to see light in the world? Begin with light in you. That's where it begins. Every moment, we get a chance, and you'll get good at what you practice. You want to get good at being afraid and anxious and angry and resentful? Practice it. You'll get really good at it. You'll become an expert at it. But if you want to be good at compassion, kindness, peace, joy, love, practice. (laughs) You get good at it. It's a matter of practice. Every moment we get to choose. My hope and prayer is that we have some more clarity and that we're not as foolish as I am, as the dog with the bone. We see clarity, the gift that's already in us. Get the sequence right. Amen. Thank you. I'd like to, I'd like to invite the prayer people to come forward. And uh, I'm going to just close in a little prayer for us briefly. And any of you who are struggling, suffering, have any needs of any kind, uh, please come forward to the prayer people. They'd be glad to be here for you to, as my dad did for me, lay a blessing on you. So let's pray. God, thanks so much for the gift of your son and the way that he came to reveal this perfect, beautiful, pristine Zoe. May we all now know as we are wrapped and worn down by the ups and the downs of the psyche life. May we enter Aeon Zoe every moment we remember. May it transform our experience of the psyche. And may we become candles that are lit, providing light to the world. Pray for everyone here who is suffering in any way. Anger, bitterness, grief, loss. Anyone who is gripped by fear, pray now that the gift of this existence in life through the power of God will come and release us all and immerse us in the womb-like quality of Aeon Zoe in this moment and every moment after. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.